0: Hello, this is Ted Floyd. I am the editor of the American Birding Association's Birding Magazine, and I've been out birding for much of the past week. This is my favorite time of the year with the nesting season and high gear. It's also my favorite time of the year because I get to interact so extensively right now with young birders at ABA teen birding camps in connection with the ABA Young Birder of the Year program and simply out in the field enjoying birds and nature together. This is also the time of the year when the ABA kicks into its Nesting Season Appeal, an urgent mid-year campaign to raise money for all our Young Birder programs, as well as the many public services like this podcast, which require funding beyond basic memberships. To contribute to the Nesting Season Appeal, please donate online at aba.org slash give or call us at 800-850-850. 2473 and give what you can. Programming at the ABA is highly cost efficient and your donation will go directly to resources for young birders and the whole community of people who care about birds and birding. Again that website is aba.org/give and the phone number is 800-850-2473. Thank you for ensuring a bright future for birds and for birders. And good birding to all of you.
1: Hello, and welcome to the American Birding Podcast from the American Birding Association. I'm Nate Swick, and I'm back, back from sunny, humid, and at least for one day, tropical, stormy South Florida. It was a family vacation primarily, which is what I'm using as my excuse. For not seeing short tailed hawk or mangrove cuckoo again. Cuckoo, I feel, is a, a real long shot, especially in midsummer. But the hawk, yeah. My dad and I were driving down the road on Sanibel Island and we had a dark beauty kind of whip by one of those, you know, less than half a second things. And, you know, all the boxes were ticked, uh, even though it was brief. But it was so brief that it's one of those things where you can't really tell the difference between what you thought you saw what you didn't see, so both of these birds will, for another year at least, remain a nemesis, uh, the hawk at least. I, probably not fair to call a notoriously sneaky and difficult bird like mangrove cuckoo uh, that I haven't really even sniffed in the ABA area a nemesis. It's just a tough bird. But my time on lovely Sanibel Island, home of the famous Ding Darling National Wildlife Refuge, could be characterized by two species. One swallow-tailed kite there are so so many of them all across the entire state of florida this time of year just a bird that is so spectacular that it's hardly fair that it's a highway bird or an everyday flyover type bird anyway i saw a lot of them the other bird was maybe appropriately the aba's 2021 bird of the year the pileated woodpecker florida also has so many pileated woodpeckers I saw them almost every day on Sanibel Island, and this is not an island that you would expect to have trees of the size that they prefer, but they were there nonetheless, calling in the palm groves, hitching up the wooden power lines, sitting on an electrical wire. I kid you not, that was something I had never seen before. And more than that, just like flying over the interstate highways on the drive home, you'd see a big bird flying over, and my first thought was, ah, it's a crow. Looks a little weird though, and then... You know, that sort of rowing, lazy flight become apparent. And it was clear I was watching a palliated woodpecker over the interstate. So I had one in like almost every other Florida county we drove through. So weird, but also fantastic because who among us can really see enough palliated woodpeckers? Not me. So I'm back in the driver's seat back home. Thank you for tolerating last week's encore interview. I'm excited to bring you some new stuff this time out. So on the show this week... Georgia, Silvera Siemens is an urban naturalist, a dendrologist, and the host of a very fun podcast called Your Bird Story, dedicated to telling all the bird stories one can find in New York City. Feels like there would be a lot. She joins me to talk about your bird story and urban naturing after this week's rare birds. This is your rare bird focus for the beginning of July 2021. Turns out I didn't miss a lot last week, unless you want to hear me talk about limpkin. More keep piling up in Texas, and I've lost count exactly how many there have been. There's also a new record for Illinois, which is the second there. And roseate spoonbills, which have exploded as far north as upstate New York now. The biggest, maybe weirdest news of the year so far has to do with a Stellar's Sea Eagle, first discovered in New Brunswick at the mouth of the Restigouche River, quite near the Quebec border, and again a few days later up the Quebec coast near Gaspé. Please forgive my poor pronunciation of these French names. Obviously, this would be a first record for both eastern provinces. 2020-2021 has been a weird year for stellar sea eagle sightings. There was one in Denali National Park last fall. You might remember I talked about an exceptionally odd report of a sea eagle photographed in Texas this past spring. And now, this New Brunswick, Quebec bird... It is perhaps reasonable to wonder how many stellar sea eagles could have crossed over into North America. Well, sharp eyed observers, eagle eyed observers, you might say, sorry, might have solved part of this mystery. Both the Denali bird from 2020 and this recent Eastern Canada bird have been well photographed, and it appears that there is a pattern on the left wing that suggests that these represent the same individual bird. So over the course of six, seven, eight months, a bird traveled from Denali National Park in central Alaska all the way to New Brunswick and Quebec. Of course, knowing this, you might wonder if that Texas bird has the same wing pattern. Unfortunately, that bird was never photographed in flight. We don't have the spread wing. We don't know. Maybe it's possible. Honestly, I don't know what scenario is more plausible, but can't blame it for wanting to spend a year wandering across the continent. That's all I have for the entire rundown of rare birds for any given week. Check out the weekly rare bird alert report on the ABA website or at aba.org RBA. You can also join our rarity sharing Facebook group, ABA Rare Bird Alert, or follow us on Twitter at ABA Bird Alert. I'm a big fan of the Growing Birding podcast scene, and one of the more interesting ones out there now is Your Bird Story. It focuses on everyday people's experiences with birds in cities. It just wrapped up its first season. I'm joined by the host of Your Bird Story, Dr. Georgia silvera Siemens. She is, among other things, the director of Washington Square Park Eco Projects, an urban and community forester, and one of the co-organizers of Black Botanist Week. Welcome, Georgia. Thank you so much for joining me.
2: Thank you, Nate. Thanks for having me. So where did the
1: idea for your bird story come from?
2: Oh, (laughs) I'm such a fan of this question. Um, It started with another program under Washington Square Park Eco Projects called Explore Birds. Mm -hmm. Explore Birds is our mobile pop-up bird education project that we co-designed with Street Lab, which is a Street based experiential nonprofit in the city. And um, I could probably do a better job of describing Street Lab because I've worked with them so much. Sure, yeah. But they, for a long time, had an explore cart, um, which was their pop up science cart that they would bring to different neighborhoods across New York City. And um, Leslie and I, Leslie's one of the co-founders, we got in touch because we had started making specimens um, from salvaged birds and wanted a way to display those in public. So we got together, we got a small grant and did a trial run in the fall of 2016. And so the program is Explore Birds. And we've been to four of the five boroughs of New York City. So sorry, Staten Island. (laughs) It's tricky to get to Staten Island. Um, And the program includes bird specimens, so study skins. We have a collection of birdie books for both, um, for all ages. We have had times had binoculars. uh, We have a listening station and we have an illustration station. And the bird specimens, I mean, people have probably heard of, oh, what's your spark bird? Yeah. But yeah. I feel like the bird specimens themselves are literally spark birds. So true.
1: It's so weird to have them like in your hand. It's it's I've seen it with kids and adults. It's like a really moving experience to be able to feel the feathers and and have that sort of tactile, you know, experience with a bird.
2: Yeah, you said it. Um I found that children are much more willing to (laughs) engage with the specimens by touch than adults. Um, I think adults come with a set of fears about things that are dead, um, about creatures that are dead, whereas children, depending on their age, haven't internalized that fear yet. Um, So with the, the specimens really sparked people's stories. And for quite a while, I'm a notebook person, so I always have a notebook in whatever bag I'm carrying. I would, after every conversation with someone who told me a story, like make quick notes in this notebook. And it just, I didn't really know what to do with these notes. And certainly I was missing the kind of emotion that was associated with the telling of these stories. And I thought, huh, it would be really great to record them. And not only record them, but share them with others, both as a way to literally share someone's story, but also as a way to get people living in cities to think about, oh, I also have a relationship with some birds in my park, and my experience is the same or different. And so it's a way to engage with birds Um in many different ways. It's an educational tool. It's also just kind of a booster tool. Like cities are full of birds and that's sort of the origin of the podcast.
1: It is really amazing how everyone has a bird story. I mean, you don't have to be like a bird watcher or a bird person, but everyone has a story about a bird that, I don't know, came really close to them and they got to see, you know, just how alive they are close up or You know, they set out a feeder or even just some food that they scattered randomly on the ground and the birds came to it and they got to experience that. It is is wild. Like, you let someone know that you are a bird person and they will tell you a bird story.
2: (laughs) (laughs) For sure. And in the city, it kind of runs the gamut, I think, from um, the more common species. Mm -hmm. You know, probably everyone has had a pigeon encounter. (laughs) Classic.
1: Yeah, classic New York.
2: (laughs) to um, maybe a scarlet tanager story. So Man. it really runs the gamut in the city. And I think that speaks to um, the different ways that cities hold diversity, whether yeah. it's human diversity or non-human diversity. Um, I want to I wanna hear as many stories as I can, and as people want to share with us about their bird encounters. Yeah
1: is there a is there an individual story that has been told to you, or even just like a type of story that has been really gratifying to tell in podcast form?
2: Oh, so you want me to pick a favorite? <laughs> <laughs> well, you don't have, that's why I said type,
1: right? <laughs>
2: um, so I have two answers, and the first one is. Um, our concluding episode for season one, which is oh, our yeah, bird girls good. episode, mm-hmm. um, a type of, and it fits squarely into the category of type of story because we focused on girls. Uh, I would say they're all under, they're all fifth grade and younger, and um, this came about actually through it was an idea of my colleague Loyanne Bosole who is an educator and also a birder. And she was really maybe disheartened by the fact that uh, a lot of attention is paid to um, male birders. Mm -hmm. And uh, she wasn't seeing the same representation uh, for girls who bird. And so she said, well, let's, let's talk to girls that we know about their bird watching practice and so that seeded the story and the girls we spoke with are just so they're so passionate they're so enthusiastic there's a lot of joy um they haven't gotten the message that only certain types of people watch birds Mm -hmm. and it was so clear in their responses to the questions and um I love seeing their confidence especially for the the girls who shared bird calls. Yeah, oh,
1: that was I, fantastic.
2: Yeah, <laughs> I am I have to say just terrible at that. <laughs> <laughs> and I am a hearing person and I find it very challenging to find birds through their vocalizations. Yeah. So for me that those particular pieces of those interviews, you know, I, I was literally awed by them. Yeah. Um, And I guess the second type of story, and this is maybe really specific to New York, is that I think none of our stories were set in the big two. And by the big two, I mean Central Park and Prospect Park. And if you're familiar with New York City, those are the premier hotspot yes. um, for birds for, during for migration better, season. <laughs> right. I mean, and it's fair, yeah. these are hundreds of acres of diverse habitat. So it makes sense that you, if you want to see um, the most number of birds during migration season, you would head to those two parts. Mm-hmm but they do cast a pretty deep and wide shadow over other places that one might go birdwatching in the city.
1: Yeah, like perhaps Washington Square Park. Yes, know. perhaps. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So what is it? What is so great about Washington Square Park? I know you're you're the director of the, the eco projects there. You, you've obviously done a ton of work uh, in this park. And I, I, I vaguely remember like Washington Square Park does have I've had some really nice birding opportunities. I know some interesting birds that have certainly showed up in, in, in a relatively small little um, piece of habitat. It goes to show how important it, even those small pieces are, are to, to birds. Um, but what, what do you love about Washington Square Park?
2: Uh, oh, so many things. Mm-hmm. But uh, related to birds, so first of all, it is my patch. Uh, it's in my neighborhood. Mm-hmm. It's um, very accessible in terms of distance to it from my apartment. Um, I love the diversity of people you find in the park. So even when, so outside of migration season, there is always something uh, to see, some animal to see, because I count people as part of the animal kingdom. <laughs> yeah, that's um, right. not separate. <laughs> there are a lot of trees in the park. So there are approximately 340 trees. And if you use your... Eyes. So if you're sighted and um, you use your eyes to observe what's going on with trees in the park, there is something to see year round. Mm -hmm. And so, as a more tree oriented person than bird oriented person, that's kind of how I came to the park was through trees and then the birds came along with that. Uh, The park, it's small, it's 9.75 acres. Um, but I find it a very welcoming place and I have to say I haven't had any negative birding experiences (laughs) in the park, whereas I have tried to look for birds in other parks and they haven't always been positive experiences. So for me, my neighborhood park is a really safe place to be, to watch birds
1: yeah, it is interesting. You 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 specifically say like 340 trees. Do you feel like you know like every single tree in that park and uh the birds that you're likely to see in those those trees?
2: <laughs> uh I have a good handle on the lives of the trees. And there are definitely within that um 10 acres micro hot spots in the park for sure. There are places that we'll know that if we go, we will see. we will see warblers Mm -hmm. um, in the oakiest parts of the park, for example, which tends to be the northwest corner. Um, There's sort of a cluster of oaks going in in that section of the park. It's also the section of the park that um, has, you know, all the layers of um, forest canopy. So it's a really rich place for birds during migration season, but certainly there are other areas of the park that work well for different types of birds.
1: Mm-hmm. Do you feel like the wildlife opportunities in places like New York and places like Washington Square Park are are sort of underappreciated? I mean, you talked about Central Park and Prospect Park being sort of, I don't know, they they leave a big footprint, both literally and, and figuratively. Other places are sort of underappreciated. Maybe people don't realize that there's nature to be found in a place like Washington Square Park or even a, a place that's smaller.
2: Yeah. So, you know, you, you used the word, um, the term wildlife and I mm-hmm. definitely think that a wildlife is under in New York and in most cities. Yeah. Um, certainly if you're into birds and, or if you just got into birds last year during the quiet of the pandemic, of that, um, yeah. yeah, you know, birds got into the spotlight last year in a really big way. Um, but there's a lot of other creatures that inhabit the city. So, you know, you can think how many people are aware of lichen. <laughs>
1: mm-hmm. yeah, not many. It right? Makes-
2: <laughs> <laughs> or um, pollinators like native flies mm-hmm. are pollinators. Mm-hmm. Or wildflowers like my friend and um, botanist extraordinaire, Marielle Anselone. um, She knows all the wildflowers that are in New York city. And I think her favorite might be the pink lady slipper. It's an orchid. I have never seen it. Um, so there's sort of that category of wildlife that people aren't familiar with and certainly trees, um, my big love, which I think for most people is just kind of like a backdrop and maybe they (laughs) really think about the tree, um, When they're sitting under its shade or if it's a cherry tree during the spring bloom season or if you're with (laughs) as i found with the birding community community they'll say oh the cape may it's in that tree you know the one with the green leaves over there (laughs) which i have heard people say um and so there are sort of many aspects to wildlife Mm -hmm. and plants are wildlife in the city that people um, don't have sort of deep knowledge of or aren't aware of, which is not to say that there aren't people who spend a better part of their life learning (laughs) about lichens and trees in cities.
1: Yeah. I I can only speak for myself and and maybe for a few of uh, other birders that I know. Um, Birds are sort of the entryway into nature study for me like they're oh. still the primary way that i enjoy experiencing nature but i do have an interest in a lot of that other stuff like i've tried to get into trees i know my basic trees and and butterflies and and flowers and things like that i've tried over the years to you know expand my nature vocabulary my nature uh, experiences um just because you know i i, I like to know this stuff I, I think we can get a lot out of that not only do you see where birds like fit on the landscape and in the ecosystem better but also i think it helps us because i am very much a beginner when it comes to a lot of this stuff and i think it allows me to get in the headspace of beginning birders better as well because like i know how difficult some of the trees can be and they know oh. how difficult some like female warblers might be like i know that experience and it keeps me sort of grounded um i think that's important for a lot of people who are who are really interested in birds
2: yeah, you know, some of them, um, I can see a way in which that tuning into birds first makes mm-hmm. sense, um, especially if you're thinking about the flashy male warblers, they're
1: sure. yeah, so
2: eye-catching, they're so engaging, um, there's so much movement, whereas, mm-hmm. you know, sometimes we take for granted the things that are always there, Yeah, um, which sure. are our trees and plants, Um, And I think however uh, one enters um, nature appreciation, I'm all for that. And there should be ways to support um, one's entry into becoming more aware of the natural world or the non-human world. Um, You know, one place where this could really take off is in schools. You know, natural history is not really even its own subject area. In the K through 12 system, you sort of pick up information about natural history, you know, maybe in science class or in English class or some other class, but it is not its own or it's an elective, but it's not important enough to be taught as a standalone subject from K through 12. And I think um, this does a real disservice to individuals, because wow, it's so enriching, but it just also does a real disservice to the world, if you think globally, and the issues that we're facing, and how knowledge is um, a real factor in advocacy and policy yeah. making, and people's opinions and perspectives about what's going on in the world.
1: Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more with that. Um, do you think people... Naturalist birders sort of discount the worth of urban environments because there's this sort of obsession with what is pristine or what is, you know, perfect habitat or whatever. And sometimes we might look at a place like Washington Square Park, which might have, you know, sidewalks or a certain amount of concrete there and think, well, this isn't a good place for nature because it's developed in some sense Uh Um, when the fact of the matter is like nothing there is like no ecosystem anywhere in in the world that isn't touched in some way by by humans and it is pristine in that sense that ideal sense Um, I I feel like we sort of have to get past that I'm curious if you have any sort of opinions on that.
2: Ah, uh, yes, uh <laughs> uh, so many, but I mean, I think there is the sort of myth maybe that needs to be busted right that yeah, yeah, yeah. there were ever pristine <laughs> yes, places, yeah. places without people um mm-hmm. managing them to whatever degree, if you're thinking of management on a continuum, um then, yes, people have always been a part of um landscapes and especially these landscapes that you know in at least in north america we've insisted on referring to as pristine or wilderness um and basically erasing um human history uh and in the city it's particularly um problematic. I mean, cities are a type of ecosystem. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's an urban ecosystem. Um, You know, it's, we make it together with people and non-humans and rain and (laughs) snow, like all this sort of natural phenomena. And certainly in cities, the human footprint or handprint is much greater, um, but it doesn't make cities less valuable for nature. Yeah. And as much as I love Washington square park and think that it is a great place to engage with uh, plants and birds and bees and all of that stuff. In my mind, it certainly could be better. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's not optimal for wildlife and because it's not optimal for wildlife, I also think it's not optimal for people because mm-hmm. there are so many benefits that you can get from being in really high quality, well-functioning ecosystems yes. as a human yeah. being. And so I don't think you you get to relegate some kinds of parks or green spaces to the rubbish bin or yeah. say that they are not good natural spaces, um, everywhere can always be improved and maybe our, you know, we are not going to reach our end goal in, I don't know, a mayoral term, which is four to eight years, but (laughs) (laughs) I think we keep striving to get there. And it really bothers me when people discount cities as natural places, because so many people do live in cities. And I think there's a kind of, um, There are problematic narratives that are wrapped up in dismissing a city as an unnatural space.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Birders go to landfills and sewage treatment plants. We have like no room to talk about about questionable habitats. Yeah. So what can birders do to encourage management of, of these parks for birding or just nature in general? Like where do we need to make our voices heard? And I understand like there may be a difference between what we need to do in new york versus maybe a different city but uh i think some of the some of the roles are are the same are similar
2: yeah i mean i think plants are you know the key the key to a lot of this um Mm -hmm. if you're a terrestrial birder certainly you won't see the birds if you don't see the plants yeah um people talk about the Kirtland's warbler, which I've never seen, but certainly um, we know that it was in trouble because of loss of habitat, which is mm-hmm. forest-based. And so for um, New York City or other cities, plants are really key um, and native plants are perhaps, do more work than mm-hmm. uh, introduced species. Um, and there's sort of a lot of research that shows this, uh, and I am not one to say don't plant and introduce species because I also think you need to think about context and the life history of each plant um, because natives do uh, exhibit invasive tendencies as well. So you really Mm -hmm. have to get specific and not deal in generalities. Plants, native um, preferably, but just really be as specific as possible.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: I would say go for trees. Um, and if you listen to Doug Tallamy, he'll say oaks all the way. <laughs> so my favorite tree is a tulip tree. It doesn't bring all the caterpillars to the yard, but I still really love it. And they probably know. They do. Yeah, I I'd probably plant more tulip trees than oaks, but I I won't get into a debate with Doug Tallamy. And not just trees, right? We're thinking about um, all all the different categories of birds and what their needs are. So you might need small trees. You might need shrubs. You might need a more diverse understory. I think Mm -hmm. taking stock of your space, whether it's your yard or your neighborhood park, and figuring out well what am i seeing and what am i not seeing and if i want to be seeing what i'm not seeing what are mm-hmm. the plants that i need to insert into this space in order to boost the kind of diversity that i want to see and it's yeah. kind of an ongoing conversation right i think in i know for Washington Square Park, which I always go back to because it's the park space that I'm most familiar with, it's really, it's harder to make changes in the tree canopy than it is to make changes, let's say the understory up to the shrub or even small tree layer. There's much more flexibility there. There's much Mm -hmm. more room, whereas you might have to wait for a tree to come down um, before you can plant another one. And then you'll have to wait certain number of years before you can really start to see some of the wildlife benefits that you might want to from that tree. So I think there's much more wiggle room in the lower parts of the canopy. So maybe that's where you put your focus. And gosh, I mean, I don't do this. And certainly different cities have different governmental structures. But, you know, in New York City, we have community boards. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you go to your community board, beat meeting and you pester and bug people.
1: <laughs> Be persistent. Yeah. Be
2: persistent. I don't do this at um at my community board and I certainly should. I definitely sort of advocate with the parks department and um also in conversations with the administrator of the park, talking to you know the park staff who work in your park is also really important. Uh, yeah, conversation and dialogue with people who are actually doing the work in your park can go a long way.
1: Yeah. You mentioned tulip poplar, but I do have one final question for you. Do you have a favorite tree for birding? And maybe it can be like an individual tree that Mm. you really like. I also like tulip poplar. I just put that out there. It's one of my favorite trees. I'm a big fan of river birch as well as a birding tree. It seems to attract a lot of little bugs that that the birds like.
2: Yeah, so... Although the tulip tree is my favorite tree, and then I maybe I would classify by saying like my favorite northeastern US hardwood. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure you have
1: lots of different lots of different categories. Yeah.
2: But it I think overall is my favorite tree. But in the park and they're two, they're on the younger side, they're not bird hotspots. Um Though there was a Cape May warbler in one mm-hmm. of the tulip trees this spring, um, and for birds, I, I, yeah, I have to say that oaks are really great um, mm-hmm. in the park. That's where you're going to see a lot of warbler species, and so I would say for me, oaks are my favorite um, birding tree. I would also but I want to add two more. (laughs) So uh, in the park, Northern Catalpa, there are two, Mm. they're a pretty good size. Um, One of them was the first place that we started seeing red starts when we started doing Mm, our bi-weekly bird surveys. And I knew that we could always go to that Northern Catalpa and see a lot of red starts. Um, And then the other tree is apple. So, oh, yeah. you know, in the fall, the yes, fruits, exactly. I mean, you see the robins, waxwings, catbirds, thrushes. It is just it. kind of yeah. a bird. That's a place you want to be in the fall um, is by a crab apple tree.
1: Yeah, I totally agree. I've had similar experiences with uh, with dogwoods, which uh, do similar things. Any of those little fruiting trees mm-hmm. um, are just like magnets for birds, especially in the fall. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Georgia. Uh, you can find your bird story in all the usual podcast places. You can also find her online. I have links to all that stuff. Um, please check it out. Uh, Georgia, It was a, it was a real pleasure to talk to you. Thank you so much.
2: Thanks a lot, Nate. I'm always happy to talk about Washington Square Park and urban nature.
1: The American Birding Podcast is brought to you by the American Birding Association. If you like this podcast, please consider supporting it by joining the ABA. Members get more, like our great magazines, discounts to partners like BDO Books, and opportunities to travel with us. Get more information at aba.org. I do have some shout-outs to make this week that I didn't make last week. Thanks to Richard Weinstein of Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, Julie Hupp of East Lansing, Michigan, Judy Grant of Chapel Hill, North Carolina, Wayne Gelfman of Sharon, Massachusetts, John Callender of Carpinteria, California, Kat Consler and family of Fairfax, Vermont, Matt Scott of Albany, Minnesota, Emily Larkin and Michael Kendrick of College Park, Maryland, Courtney Meckling of Hopwood, Pennsylvania and Michael McCoy. Of Edmond, Oklahoma, all of whom recently joined the ABA, noted this podcast as a reason. Thank you so much for that. Executive producer of the podcast and president of the ABA is Jeffrey Gordon, who, when asked for his favorite burning tree, just smiles and says, Oh, nothing, which I think is just Sequoia. Technical production this week is by Greg Addington, filling in for John Lowry. Thanks so much, Greg, for stepping in when John left us in a larch. Additional help comes from David Hartley or Greg Neese, neither of which have a favorite tree. But David did note that his least favorite are mildly toxic, either hemlock or horse chestnut. But it does depend on which one makes him sick more. You can find us online at aba.org and on various social medias as American Birding Association or ABA. I was pretty exceeded for these credits, but I didn't want to make them too obvious. You know, it's a poplar vein. So many of these tree jokes are boring, terrible. What's the worst that can happen, right? U-turn out? Face palm? Nothing I haven't been asked before. Questions, comments, corrections can come to podcast.aba.org. I'm Nate Swick. Thanks for listening. Stay healthy. See you next week.